Good morning. I'm always happy to be here at IMC to share the Dharma with all of you. It's been a while since my last time, and I was very pleased when Gil called. Uh, as Bill said, I am in that Suzuki Roshi lineage, so Gil and I are actually uh, Dharma brother and sister because he has two lineages. So we've known each other a long time, and it's wonderful to see so many people come out on a Sunday morning to do this ancient practice together. And I bet last Sunday it was really hot in this room. (laughs) So I've been thinking a lot about the nature of Sangha. Sangha is why you are here today. Uh, Obviously, the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha can never be uh, looked at independently. They all form part of a circle. But sometimes I have students come and they understand the importance of Buddha, the historical Buddha, as well as the Buddha uh, within. And they understand about the Dharma because there are the teachings of the Buddha. Then they say, but I I don't get, what's the importance of Sangha? Why do I need to come and sit with a group? I can sit at home. This is very hard to explain and very easy to experience. So those people who require an explanation, I I don't know what to say to them. I I just say, come, Just, just come and sit with other people and see for yourself. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But I'm always reminded of the old story where Buddha is talking to his disciple Ananda. And they're talking about this exact thing, about the three jewels. And Ananda gets to some point when he's thinking about Sangha. Hmm. He talks to the Buddha about it, and the Buddha talks to him about it, and he goes away, comes back, he says, Oh Lord, now I understand that Sangha is is part of spiritual life. (laughs) I'm sure the Buddha probably rolled his eyes in his head and thought, oh dear. And he turns to Ananda and he says, no Ananda, Sangha is the whole of spiritual life. That's hard to understand. Americans in general are very used to being incredibly independent, or they think they are. And the idea that something might be different in a group, that actually the meditation energy will increase in a group. This, this is not something we normally think about as we're driving around individually in our little cars on the freeway. So today I wanted to talk about the three minds that Zen Master Dogen used to recommend for those people who wanted to really support and benefit all beings and in particular of course the beings of the Sangha the three minds are magnanimous mind in Japanese it's daishin dai means great huge and shin is this uh, Eastern idea that 
eventually, if we practice even for a short period of time, we come to understand ourselves of heart-mind. They don't make a separation between those two, as Westerners have traditionally done. So Shin is the character both in Japanese and in Chinese representing this heart-mind. So Daishin, enormous mind, magnanimous mind. The second is Roshin, which is nurturing mind. Ro actually sort of means old, so old mind. And then the third, Kishin, joyful mind. And these are the three minds that Dogen recommends that we develop and maintain for the benefit of all beings. And that is what I would like to talk about today. So this magnanimous mind is like the ocean or an enormous mountain. If you think about the biggest thing that you can think of, it's like that. So recently, um, I do teach at Peninsula School, and I am always a chaperone on the eighth grade trip. Camping trips are part of our curriculum for all classes. And by the time they're in eighth grade, the camping trip is uh, at least a week long. And so we take 20 to 22 children with four adults out someplace for a whole week. And they're amazing because in all the years that they've been growing up together, they have gone on these trips. And so by eighth grade, they buy the food, they plan the meals, they cook the meals, they clean up after the meals. And adults are just there to make sure that they use the knives properly. (laughs) can get a little scary. (laughs) So on this last trip, it was the longest drive that I can remember ever doing all in one day. We drove up to the Shasta area. It was a seven and a half hour drive. It was grueling. And there are parts of that drive where, you know, it's just straight. And finally, I I was so glad when they turned off at a rest stop. But we got into the, the general area and we started seeing these mountains. And they had snow on them. And it had been a long time since I'd been to Shasta. And I, I was driving along going, oh, is that one Shasta? Hmm, maybe that one Shasta. And then finally you come around this big bend. And there's Shasta. <laughs> you can't miss it. It's the biggest thing around and it's all by itself in all its glory. That is what we're talking about. If you haven't seen Shasta, just go out to the Pacific every now and then. But that in magnanimous mind, that is the image you can have. Because magnanimous mind is so huge that it can contain and support everything. So rivers are always feeding the ocean. And the Pacific Ocean doesn't stop them and say, well, excuse me, have you passed the EPA quality standards? You know, or you can't come in. Or, oh, I'm sorry, we already have enough water. You'll have to hold on to yours for a while. No, the ocean just says, oh, yes, come. It's not even a question. It's just accepting. That is magnanimous mind. Magnanimous mind requires something that is very hard for human beings. And that is that really big view. 
long-term vision, and I mean really long. The Buddha had very long-term vision. He did not expect his teachings to become popular or even taken up by very many people in his lifetime. In fact, he really didn't even expect it to take on in the first 500 years. He talked about kalpas. In future kalpas, maybe, Buddhism would be understood and practiced. Now, a kalpa, in case you have forgotten, can be likened to a boulder about the size of this room that an angel comes down every hundred years with a feather, brushes it, and leaves. And it takes a kalpa to get that boulder down to nothing. So we're talking about Buddha saying kalpas and kalpas of time will be required. But human beings, at the most, have about a hundred years. Give or take 10 or 15 in either direction, if you're lucky, and you have all your capabilities, that'd be nice. And even if you add in another hundred years for your parents, maybe they're still alive. And you add another hundred years in for your children. You're talking, you know, 300 years, maybe, of information and experience. This is nothing. But we can't help ourselves. Because we live such a short period of time in comparison to the life of the world and the universe. So one of my favorite writers, maybe many of you here probably know, Wendell Berry, he writes about it this way. The fallibility of a human system of thought is always the result of incompleteness. In order to include some things, we invariably exclude others. We can't include everything because we don't know everything. We can't comprehend what comprehends us. The incompleteness of a system is rarely, if ever, however, perceptible to those who made it. Dogen, in one of his sutras, writes, If you are standing in the middle of the ocean, it looks round. It does not look any other way. But if you've been out to the coast recently, you know the ocean is not round. Because now you're standing on the coast. And you can see for yourself. It has a shape. We cannot see beyond the limits of our own practice I and that is what makes our life difficult that is what makes it hard to have magnanimous mind because we are focusing on a pretty small place and time and the Buddha this is, this is what was so amazing he really did have a very large mind So the best example that I know personally, but I know there are many examples of this, was my spiritual grandfather, Suzuki Roshi, of really big mind. Suzuki Roshi, in his own country, was really pretty much nobody. He was just the son of a temple priest in Yaizu, Japan, halfway between Kyoto and Tokyo. 
you know, he'd gone to Eheji, the training temple, and he probably thought he was going to carry on his father's work, but things happened. And instead he got sent to the United States and he didn't come for Westerners. He came to lead a small Japanese congregation. But it was in the 60s. And Alan Watts had paved the way with you know, all his talk about Zen and D.T. Suzuki had already been writing about Zen. So when he arrives, somehow the word goes out. There's some Zen master in San Francisco. So lots of hippies started going to this very conservative Japanese temple where everybody at the temple was, oh, hey, hold us on, you know, whatever you say. And then they, but these hippies come. And they're not doing, oh, hi, Hojo-sama. They're saying, so what is this Zen thing anyway? (laughs) Nobody asks Oroshi questions. They just bow and say, hi, yes. (laughs) But that's what he loved. They asked questions. They didn't just accept what he said as the word. They wanted to know. And so Suzuki Roshi came up with a description of this that is now used in all different kinds of meditation practice to describe what we are all hoping to develop, beginner's mind. He said, in the expert's mind, there are few possibilities, but in the beginner's mind, there are many. So my favorite story of this time, it was probably around 67 in the summer of love, a woman who eventually became a monk herself, but at that time was just, you know, a hippie with long flowing skirts and dangly earrings, goes to Sokoji, the little Japanese temple. Suzuki Roshi meets her and her friend, takes them upstairs to the little meditation hall, shows them around, shows them a little about the posture. You know, they probably went in bare feet because he talks about that, the bare dirty feet, (laughs) which in a Japanese temple don't do but he didn't he didn't stop them he didn't tell them anything he just you know brought them up and showed them and talked to them about the practice and meditation and then just before they were leaving apparently he turned to the woman and he said something to the effect of uh, ah well you know um, uh, first noble truth of Buddhism uh, life is suffering They're walking down the stairs afterwards and the woman turns to her friend and says, Life is suffering? Whoa. (laughs) What a bummer. (laughs) But she came back. This was not what people, kids in the 60s wanted to hear. Life is suffering? What? No, no, make love, not war, you know. Life is suffering that's so depressing. I don't want to hear this. But she came back. And I have to ask myself, why? Because here was somebody who could be Shasta Mountain, who could be the Pacific Ocean, who was not expecting anything, not wanting anything, but just open arms. Here I am. Here's the practice. Come and join me.
And what really blows me away, because I hadn't really added up the dates, but Suzuki Roshi was actually only here for 12 years before he died. And in that time, he helped create the first Western monastery, which was Tassajara, San Francisco Zen Center, and Green Gulch Farm. I'm still working on my first little sangha in Menlo Park, and you know I've been doing it for 15 years. I, when I think about that, I know that what he had was this gift of magnanimous mind, and everyone wanted to be there with him for that reason. I'm sure you have all met, or I hope you have all met, at least one person in your life like that. Because the experience of that unconditional acceptance is, is a gift. And it's not one that you easily forget. And instead, you pass it on. So the second mind, nurturing mind, is Roshin. And it's Ro, it's old as in grandmother or grandfather mind. This is the mind of a grandparent who delights in caring for others. You know, I haven't talked to a grandparent yet who doesn't like having grandchildren. I've got lots of parents who sometimes would like a break. But grandparents universally, because of course there is always the opportunity to hand the child back when it gets to be too much. But there really is a different relationship between grandparents and their grandchildren. Maybe it's a little bit of a distance. Maybe you're older and wiser. I'm not sure. But as a teacher, I see this all the time. So this Roshin mind is is Bodhisattva mind. It is the mind of taking care. It is the mind that doesn't want to enter nirvana until everybody gets to do it. It isn't just for me anymore. I I don't want to do this practice just for my own benefit because I deeply understand there is no such thing as my own benefit. There is only all of us together. So I want to read you my favorite teaching story. And I apologize if you've heard it before, but it illustrates this mind so well. And it's not even a Buddhist story, which is probably just as well. Because these minds are not just limited to Buddhism. It's only that our meditation practice helps us to develop them. So this story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order, as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries and the rise of secularism in the 19th, all its branch houses were lost. And it had become decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the mother house, the abbot and four others, all over 70 years of age. Clearly, it was a dying order. In the deep woods that surrounded this monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. Through their many years of prayer, the old monks had become a little psychic. 
So they could always sense when the rabbi was in the hut. Ah, the rabbi's in the woods. The rabbi's in the woods. They would whisper to each other. As he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed him into his hut, but when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. Oh, I know how it is. The spirit has gone out of the people. It is the same in my town. Almost no one comes to synagogue anymore. And so the old abbot and the rabbi wept together. And then they read parts of the Torah and quietly spoke of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave and they embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years. But I have still failed in my purpose for coming. Is there nothing you can tell me? No piece of advice you can give me that would help me to save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, said the rabbi. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, (laughs) his fellow monks gathered round and said, Well, well, what did the rabbi say? Oh, he couldn't help. We just wept and read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, was rather cryptic actually, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. Well... In the days and weeks that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us. Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? Huh, well, if that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Oh, sure. If he meant anyone, he probably meant Father Abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Hmm. Certainly, Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. (laughs) He couldn't have meant Brother Elred, though. Boy, Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he's a thorn in people's sides, when you look at back on it, Elred is virtually always right. Sometimes very right. Hmm. Maybe the rabbi did need mean Brother Elred. Huh. But surely not Brother Philip. <laughs> Philip is so passive. A real nobody. But then... Almost mysteriously, he does have a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just sort of magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. 
But supposing he did. Suppose I'm the Messiah. Oh, God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? Well, as they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them (laughs) might be the Messiah and on the off, off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander on its paths, and even now and then, to go into the dilapidated chapel to pray and meditate. And as they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. And hardly knowing why, they began to come back. More frequently to picnic, to play, to pray. And they began to bring their friends to show them this special place. And their friends brought their friends. And then it happened. Some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks and after a while one asked if he could join them and then another and another and within a few years the monastery had once again become a thriving order and thanks to the rabbi's gift a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. This rabbi had Roshin. He had a grandfather's heart mind. As soon as the abbot told him what the problem was, he knew there was no conventional solution to this problem. I mean, it's not like he could say, hmm, have you thought about getting in a facilitator? Maybe you should do a PowerPoint presentation to the village and get a few recruits. No. The day for that was long past, even if that had ever been the answer. No. His Roshin, his nurturing mind, went right to the heart of the matter. He saw that the monks had lost their center. Somehow, they had lost their faith and their respect and their joy in the spiritual life. And the rabbi knew he had to do something that would cut right through that. And so, he said, the Messiah is one of you. 
I recently was reading this story to a member of my Sangha who just died on Friday evening. And I've been sitting with her for several weeks now and sat by her bed for the last 48 hours this week. And as I was reading that part, when I got to the part of the Messiah is one of you, all of a sudden, you know, she'd just been lying there and she said, Buddha nature. He's talking about Buddha nature. It doesn't matter what we call it. You can call it the Messiah, God, the ground of being, the cloud of unknowing, Buddha nature. Whatever we want to call it, it is what we all share. And it is in everyone and everything. And so the rabbi understood that he needed to remind them of this. The Messiah is one of you. He could as easily have said, don't forget, the Messiah is you and you and you and you and you and me. It's never a good idea to tell people too much, to explain too much. Because in his wisdom, the rabbi understood they needed to find it out for themselves. So he didn't say anything except that one somewhat cryptic statement so that the monks would have to sit there and go, what did he mean by that? And then to begin to think, maybe he meant one of us and maybe he meant this brother or that brother and even though I don't necessarily like everything about that particular monk, well, it is true. They do have this other part of them. And you could think of that being the Messiah, Buddha nature. And then to even think of oneself in that way. You cannot help them but treat everyone as Buddha. This was his gift. So finally, we come to the third mind, joyful mind, Kishin. This is the mind that comes from deep in our heart. It is there always, even in the midst of our difficulties. This is the insight that we have in our meditation practice. That the longer we practice, we begin to see that difficulties are just difficulties. As Suzuki Roshi said at one point, you practice long enough and you will no longer have any difficulties. It wasn't that he meant that things wouldn't happen. Just that you won't have difficulty with your difficulties. Joy is always there. If it's not, we need to find a new practice. There are two signs to me that practice is filling our entire being. And they're related. One is, you begin to see a softening in people. The defenses start to go down. They reach out more. All the hard edges start getting worn down, like rocks in a stream. We're all bumping up against each other. 
we begin to soften after years and years of Sangha practice. If you are not in that stream with all those other hard-edged rocks, you can sit alone in your little ivory tower and think that's what you're doing. And it's all wonderful. And Oh, I'm in a state of equanimity. Until someone comes along and pushes you. We have to have Sangha. Sangha is what makes it real. It, it's the test, in a sense. Whatever anybody is doing or saying, can we maintain our center? So there's another Zen teacher, Morinaga Roshi. He wrote, Meditation sets up its practice so that you can attain enlightenment by looking intently into your own heart. If that heart were really yours alone, no matter how intently you continued to gaze at it, you could never awaken to universal truth. But the heart, heart heart-mind, is not an individual possession. It is not yours alone. The heart, the life that is within you, is born in companionship with the environment of all sentient beings. You cannot exist in this world alone. It is just physically impossible. The very fact that you're all sitting in this room today says to me that there are roads out there and there are cars, there are street lights, and there are laws regarding them because you all managed to get here today. So if for nothing else, we have to have transportation and a system that's been developed over years and years so that we can all do things together. The air that we are breathing in this room, at what point does that oxygen stop being free-floating in the environment and become you? Is it, is it when it goes in your nostrils? Or is it when it gets down into your lungs? Is it when the little alveoli come and take it up and put it in the bloodstream? Is it when the bloodstream takes it through the body and gives it to the cells? At what point does that oxygen become you? But you think of everything inside of your body as yours. And then, of course, the opposite thing happens and all the carbon dioxide has to come out. When is that not yours? When you get down to that level, it's pretty hard to make any distinction. We do not exist alone. We are not independent. We are actually completely interdependent. And within Zen practice, this is what's called emptiness. This is the understanding of the no-self, the self that actually is always in connection with every other self, with every sentient being. And this is indeed a joyous thing. I sit with people who are dying probably at least once or twice a year. Sometimes I know them really well and sometimes I don't know them very well. It is always a very moving and profoundly transformative experience for everyone concerned. 
for the person who is dying, for the hospice workers, for the family members, and for me when I'm there. To watch us go from the state that you are in right now of being totally independent people. You can get up on your own two feet and you can walk out this door and you can go home and you can make yourself something to eat and you can decide later what you're going to do. To the place where you are lying on your bed and you have to have somebody turn your body to wipe your bottom. And you can do nothing for yourself. And you realize at that moment that you have always been dependent on other beings and that they are dependent upon you. One of the most moving things that happens when you're sitting with a dying person is that you begin to breathe with them. You don't necessarily start out trying to do this. It just happens. Because you know how Zen meditation teachers are always talking about the importance of breath? (laughs) At some point, it's like, enough already about the breath. But this is, it's really true. The last part of your life and at the very beginning of your life is that (sighs) when the baby first takes its breath, that first gasp, which wakens the mind, it's the same thing at the other end. The breathing starts getting very labored. Sometimes a whole breath is missed and you think, is this it? And then all of a sudden there's a, and the breath comes in again. But then there finally comes the moment when the last breath is taken. It's very profound. But it is not the end. The best description that I ever heard was in uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Suzuki Roshi talks about going to uh, Yosemite. He's at Yosemite Falls. He says, oh, so beautiful. Water falling, 5,413 feet. He said, and I noticed at the top all the water together falling. But then as it's falling down, it all separates out into little individual drops. Oh, what a long journey it is for those little drops to go all the way from the top, 5,413 feet, to rejoin the river at the bottom. He says, this is our life. We are all part of that big river. And then comes this moment that we call birth. We're coming over the falls and we spread apart into tiny little individual drops. And each of us has to go on that long journey down the falls within the body of our little drop of water. And then we come to the bottom of the falls. And that's the thing we call death. But that's where we rejoin the river. So, 
we have some ideas of birth we have some ideas of death but nothing can come from nothing which means it can't go into nothing we don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going and we can't even call it a we but in that time between the top of the falls and the rejoining with the stream at the bottom we can experience great joy it is the joy of knowing that we are all falling together that we are all part of this big stream called life and that we will always be a part of it I wish you great joy in your practice and great softening and I hope that you continue it for the rest of that fall. Thank you.